You're listening to Little Green Cheese, episode 52. G'day Curd Nerds, welcome back to Little Green Cheese Podcast. Today's special guest is Brendan Heffernan and uh, he's from Norellan Vale in New South Wales and uh, Brendan and I met online, we haven't met in person, we met online on the Curds and Way Down Under Facebook group. Welcome to the show Brendan. Thanks very much Gavin, it's great to be here. Fantastic. So mate, first question straight out of the gate, why did you start making cheese? I was looking for a new hobby. My wife and I went to a Camden show one year, many years ago, probably about five or six years ago, and there was a stall there where they were selling courses on how to make cheese. But unfortunately, the price was way out of my price range for the weekend. I think it was like five or $600 or something. I couldn't afford that. So I decided you must be able to do this stuff yourself. Learn it online and get kits, stuff like that. So I went out and I looked for these things online and I started from there, started with the basics, you know, things like feta, halloumi, the very easy cheeses, and then started, you know, progressing from there. So I basically just went online, started looking for information and, um, and kits and just went from there. So what was your, um, what was the best resource place or site um, or were there multiple? Oh, there were multiple. Uh, the first thing I, I found was the, um, the Mad Millie cheese kits. Uh, that was the best starting point for me. Uh, very basic kits. Uh, I know a lot of people don't sort of look down on them a little bit, but for me it was a great starting point. Some great um, bits and pieces, you know, all the, the things that you need to get started. And I've since progressed beyond them now and I'm moving into other areas and getting supplies that they don't supply. But it was a great starting point. So it was them, uh, then just basically researching various sites on the web and then coming across the Facebook uh, group Curds and Way was an also, also also a great resource. Yeah, they're pretty awesome. I think, like I think in the last episode, I recommended um, a whole bunch, or could have been the one before, a whole bunch of um, Facebook groups and other resources. And I find that those um, those Facebook groups are really personal, and you can really learn a lot because a lot of people sharing stuff, right? That's right. So you know, I got nothing. I have no issues with the Mad Millie stuff at all. In fact, we stock some of that stuff in our shops, not the kits per se, but certainly a lot of their ingredients and stuff because, you know, they're good. They're good stuff. Yeah, there's, and, there's and they're not, in every nothing wrong with the ingredients. They're in lots of shops, right? So, and where the normal average Joe who wants to start a, a cheese making hobby, um, it's readily available to get them. You don't have to go to a specialty cheese store or anything like that. That's right. Now, look, there's nothing wrong with the, what they sell. It's just there's been um, times when I've spoken to uh, real true professionals in the industry at um, you know conferences and things like that that I've gone to, and um, a lot of them sort of look down on those sorts of things. They go, they go, oh, they're a bit basic, you know, they they oversimplify things, and yet they do. But that's their purpose. Mm, mm. It's to get you started. Yeah, and it's that's, a beginner's that's kit. They were. Yeah, definitely, it's a beginner's kit, and and they really and they do that well. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that really was a good grounding for me. I had some spectacular failures at first, <laughs> and then I had some absolute winners, and it was, uh, it's been, been very rewarding. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of failures, I don't know if you've seen it. You've, the, the video I put up yesterday on, on YouTube, that was painful if I, <laughs> to put together 
not, not as that. in not as in the creation or the publishing. It was the oh, do I really want to show all of these disasters when I've been showing you know so many successes? And the good thing is I've had such great positive feedback. So I think um, uh, the failures that we make, uh, failures as we go along, the cheese as we go along, uh, it's all learning because if we don't learn from our successes. Because you know, yeah. Oh, well, that's all right. Why did that work out? You'll never know. Um, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I think everybody who starts making cheese always comes up with a few failures. I certainly had my um, my share, my my swag full of them. That's for sure. Yeah, I watched that video and uh, I got a bit of a chuckle out of it. And, um, <laughs> I thought, well, that's I, I've been there, done that. Maybe not to the, uh, some of the cheeses you'd made. I'd never tried, but. It was just, it's interesting to see somebody that, uh, like yourself, who's um, uh, an, well, maybe not so much of an expert, but a very good cheesemaker, uh, still uh, has mistakes and errors and, and it happens. And sometimes it's not even because you do anything wrong. It's just, it could be the milk, it could be anything. You just, you don't really know. And that's what makes it so um, alluring. You know, you, you really want to find out more about it. Why did this fail? Why didn't it work? Uh, why did this work? Uh, how can I repeat that? Yeah, they they say that uh, cheese making's part science and part art. So yes, I would have to agree. Yeah, definitely. Now, you recently went along to a cheese festival. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, that was interesting. Um, it wasn't originally. It wasn't. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. It was a good day. It wasn't a wasted day out. Um, but uh, what I thought it was going to be was more just basically all these different cheese uh, makers and um, their. Um, selling not only cheeses, but um, be able to talk to them and, you know, ask questions and learn from them. But what it ended up being more about was basically people just selling cheese and there was also half of it was wine as well. So there wasn't that opportunity to be able to speak to the actual makers Mm. themselves. Um, And a lot of the people who were actually manning the stalls um, uh, weren't actually cheesemakers themselves. They were just employees. So... They weren't really in a position to answer questions. There was a one or two stalls there where the actual cheesemakers were there and I was able to talk to them, which was great. And they did have one molecular biologist there as well who was able to answer some of my questions, which was good. But, yeah, other than that, it was a little bit of a disappointment. But uh, still, I did get, get to meet Darren and had a great day out. Yeah, Darren Aldridge, um, he's been on the show before and uh, he's, from what I've seen on his Facebook page, and though I can't remember what episode, but uh, I'll, I'll find it in the in post-edit, but he's created his own cheese-making kitchen. He's built a new room off the back of his house. I haven't I've seen it. Seen he's it. in Melbourne. It looks fantastic. I've seen it in the pictures. It looks fantastic. I wish I could do that. Yeah. I <laughs> All th- the stainless steel benches and everything, and you just think, wow, that'd be so easy to clean down. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it certainly beats cleaning my kitchen every time I have to um, make cheese and f- and film a video. It's going to be spotless, mm-hmm. uh, not for the video, but for the cheese itself because we want to eat it later on. But I think he's um, he's going on to to sell um, some of his uh, cheeses at market. I think that's he did get food uh, food handling accreditation and the kitchen got inspected and all that sort of stuff. He but did. I'm, um, I'm going to be talking to him um, in about six months' time. Apparently, he's. Um, broken some bones or something yes he's had a bit of a fall but he, he's all right and uh, he's going to be getting back into it soon so look forward to getting him back on board and making more cheese again yeah definitely so what are some of the cheeses that you've actually made and and what are some of the successful ones and what are some of the the ones that uh, turned out not so good 
Oh, probably the most success successful has to be the double cream brie that I make. I seem to have that one down pat now. Uh, it just it just goes down a treat. It's so lovely. But the sort of I've made all sorts of cheeses, starting obviously with the feta, the halloumi, and then moved on to things like camembert brie, and then went to the um, stiltons and blue veins, and then I moved on to the harder cheeses. I tried kefili and cheddar. That was a failure. <laughs> that one tasted bitter for some reason. Yeah. Uh, but uh, oddly enough, when you cook it, when you heat it up and it melts. It tastes wonderful. So the cooking process is doing something that is removing the bitter taste mm. from um, from the cheese. So to those people that are out there listening, don't necessarily think just because you try the cheese that it, it's a failure if it doesn't taste right. Try cooking it and see if that changes it because it did for this cheddar and we, we had it tonight on some food and it was lovely. So failures are not necessarily the end of the world. Yeah, definitely. I have to agree 100% there. I've made some fantastic blue cheese sauces out of some <laughs> of the disasters that I've um, I've made or just it, mainly through neglect. <laughs> you, you have a, the, too many cheeses in the cheese fridge and you forget to turn one and don't provide it with enough oxygen or something and, uh, yeah, it all goes to custard. So <laughs> Exactly. So out of all but, those, what's your favourite? I think the best one I ever made has to be the um, the Swiss, the Emmentaler. Um, that was following one of your recipes, and it was just absolutely fantastic. It was bang on. The nuttiness was there. It was slightly chewy in its texture. People that I gave it to just couldn't believe that I had made that myself. Mm. Um, and soon to open, you know, open up the uh, the Jarlsberg, so we'll see what that's like in a, in another week or so. Uh, again, I'm expecting something similar. It's doing, seems to be doing all the right things. But um, Parmesan, that's another one that um, uh, takes a lot of time, a lot of waiting. But when it turns out at the end, that's it's, it's really uh, satisfying. Yeah, they're amazing. The Parmesan, homemade Parmesan, I don't know. Some people think they – well, the people I talk to anyway in uh, uh, my work colleagues, they're just amazed in the different types of cheeses that I'm able to make. And and they're quite lucky because uh, they're, they're my guinea pigs. When I um, crack it open one, I'll take a quarter in, and they really like it. So um, that's what I do as well. I take my cheeses into the office, and people there get to try it out, and they're like, "Wow, you really made this!" And I'm like, "Yep, yeah. I did," and that's amazing. Yeah, it's like we've got, uh, as Rochelle said last week, we, it's like we've got a superpower. Yeah, <laughs> people they, they people forget um, that things like this. Is, this is how it used to be done, you know. Mm. decades ago people didn't used to go to the supermarket and buy their bread or buy their cheese you used to have to make it because nobody did it nobody else did it for you that's right there wasn't the mass and industry the, the, food market that exactly we've got today. it's a lost art and this is something that we're bringing back you know people making their own bread people growing their own vegetables and people making their own cheese mm, definitely and I, I do quite a few of those i dare say you do too so where do you store all this cheese that you make or how do you mature it I had mature it all in the um, in my little cheese fridges that I have in the garage. I've got two small bar fridges, and I have them set anywhere between ten and fifteen degrees, depending on what I'm maturing. And I've rigged up a special um, thermostat system that bypasses the temperature of the fridge, and which basically turns the refrigerator off and on 
to maintain the temperature because as you know if you use a regular fridge the highest temperature you can get if you crank the thermostat right up would be about nine or ten degrees and that's not necessarily where you want it yeah sometimes you want it to be higher than that so without having to do any electrical work to the actual refrigerator themselves i was able to rig up my own little system to um, make the refrigerator turn off and on as i need it to keep it at that butter zone that we like to keep it in yeah so is that um so is that unit an external plug-in unit so you plug the fridge into that and then put a thermostat very That's similar right, yeah so you know when the when the, it's not on if you open the fridge and the light doesn't come on you know that the the therm the uh, thermostat hasn't been triggered yeah and the uh, relay is off and it's keeping the fridge off yeah i, I test mine every week by holding the little um the probe and, and, yes. wait, and wait for Warm the light to come on yeah wait for the light to come on in fact, that's the only time I test it. So once a week, I think it's good enough. Yeah, definitely. No, so you don't. How do you how do you um, get around the humidity issue that a lot of cheesemakers seem to have when they use cheese fridges? Um, I just keep a little bucket of uh, water in the bottom, and that seems to keep. So have you got a high high grometer in there as well to tell you what the relative humidity is? I do. Uh, usually, it's not quite as high as I would like it because it doesn't provide quite enough humidity but it, it's it's usually good enough for most one of the things that i'm, I'm going to probably look at getting at some point is um a little device that can spray water oh, as a right. very fine mist yep. or see some sort of humidifier or something which i might put in into a fridge but maybe that might be for when i get a bigger fridge because these fridges are very small yeah and i think that uh, anything that would add extra humidity to the air would probably be overkill i think that the uh, bucket of water at the bottom is working for me at this stage yeah and if there are any cheeses that um really go nuts on the humidity what i'll do is i'll get a um, paper towel and wet it and put it inside the box with the cheese and then close the lid and that will help to raise the uh, humidity in the box a little bit yeah that definitely works and it also helps to absorb some of the um the way that comes off some of the cheeses as well yes no good tip brendan so how do you how do you um protect your cheeses so do you what do you prefer waxing vacuum packing or cloth banding i haven't got a vac sealer so i haven't gone down that path and um, i've only recently got exposed uh, to the uh, cloth banding method which you showed us a little while ago a few months ago Um, so my only way is either by forming a rind on them naturally or with waxing okay so what have you had the most success with waxing yeah i find that when i try and grow rind or get a rind on the cheese that um uh, you tend to get a lot of mold growth uh, and that's just part and parcel of cheese making really you just have to keep scraping it off but that's what you got to do yeah definitely now i i also find that you've got to have the fridge quite humid if you're going to do the natural rind method even if you oil the rind um i found that a in the early days, some of the parmesans that I was making dried out like hard as rocks. Once once they've gone about to the mm. ten month mark, they're only good for grating. Even when you oil it, and it's because of the size. Because we're only making you know one to two kilo wheels of cheese. Unlike uh, in the Parmigiano Reggiano region in Italy, where they're making forty to eighty kilo. Um, size parmesans they don't dry out because they can they're have them huge, yeah, they're huge they're massive absolutely massive i've seen i've never seen a full one i've only seen a half a one <laughs> well that's exactly what happened to my first parmesan i i cut it open and it was like hard as a rock but when you shaved some off it and tasted it the flavor was just insane it was just everywhere it was just 
got up the back of your nose and it was just so strong and it was beautiful. Yeah. Um, we ended up grating it and um, it was great on, on all sorts of things. The other, I've got two more on the go now that are maturing. And what I've done is I took your advice and uh, I waxed them after about three or four months mm. just to help keep them a little bit more moist so that they don't go quite as hard and dry when I crack them open. Yeah, it definitely works. And that was I just found that method through trial and error um, mm. because I'd waxed it. Uh, I, I had made one and waxed it at one month and I found when I cracked it at a year, uh, there was a fair bit of seepage still, so which was a bit of an issue. Um, but uh, when I did it at three months, it was dry enough to, um, to to still have a little bit of moisture. You could actually shave it. You could cut it, but, you know, quite hard. But uh, it wasn't mm. rock hard. So, yeah, I think that's probably a good uh, a good middle ground. We actually burnt the motor on our um, food processor in, in attempting to grate <laughs> this cheese. We, uh, yeah, it just couldn't handle it and the, the motor was burnt out. I had to do it by, had to grate it by hand. Yeah. And but uh, it's all gone now and it was delicious. And knuckles as well, I dare say. Yes, yeah. I did do a little bit of a knuckle as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So do you have any um, any particular cheese books that you that are your go-to guides for recipes and stuff like that? Funny enough, no, actually. That's not something that I've uh, looked into yet, but that is something that I'm going to put onto the Christmas list. I'm definitely going to have a look to see if there are any um, you know cheese books that I'd like and um, have them added to the add to the list because um, reading and following recipes I think is an important way to learn not only just by you know watching videos um, so yeah that is definitely something I'm going to be doing soon yeah definitely and there's a lot out there um, I think I've got about oh, about six or seven at the moment of just books that I've managed to get even really old ones I've got one from the 40s which um, the food handling um, practices are very dubious. So <laughs> I think you, uh, you you have to take it with a grain of salt. But, uh, but uh, yeah, and bring it up to modern food handling standards, so it, it'll be fine. In fact, I've used a couple of recipes out of those really old books as well, and they've turned out okay. In fact, mm. I've recently made, and I haven't put the video up for it, it's, an Eng- uh, it's called English Farmhouse Cheese, which is very similar to a French uh, Coulommiers. I think that's how you pronounce it. And it's basically like camembert without the penicillium uh, candidum. Oh, okay. And and they're a lot taller. They're about two, maybe three inches tall. But uh, yeah, you got to be really persistent, and you'll you'll see that when the video you've you got to keep topping up the molds all the time. Apparently, um, these type of cheeses have a special um, a special mold that uh, you have the bottom part and you slot a top part into it, and you fill the whole thing up. And then once it's shrunk down, it's the right size, and you can take the top bit off, so the curds shrink down as as it presses down by itself. So yeah, it's a and, and I couldn't find any. There were some in Europe, but they cost a fortune, so I couldn't get get them over here. They're made of stainless steel. They're like a stainless steel hoop. Um, very right. strange. So Coulomers, I, I think that I'm pronouncing that correctly, but yeah, so that'll that'll be out soon. But uh, yeah, nice, easy, soft cheese. I couldn't believe how easy it was to make. It was just persistence every hour for about six hours going back and filling up the little mould again. So, yeah. Well, it sounds like my double cream breeze. That's what I end up doing. I end up with so much curd that it doesn't all fit into the moulds. I have to, over at least an hour and a half to two hours as it sinks, to scoop a bit more curd in. Yeah. And then finally when it's all gone... uh, off they go and do their thing. Yeah. yeah they, I know what you mean about having to go back and 
top it up. Yeah, it's a pain, but it's uh, it's definitely worth it in the end. I'm yet to taste it. I'm I'm going to film it after this after the podcast interview. Oh, so fantastic. it should be it should be nice, and I'll, I'll put photos up. <laughs> Keep a look out for that. Yeah, definitely. So, where do you source your equipment um, locally or um, internationally? My cheese making equipment. Yes, sorry. Yeah. Uh, well, all of it. Most most of my equipment I've got through. Um, Purchasing the various Mad Millie kits, the introductory kit, the um, artisan kit, and the specialty kits. Uh, once I got those, um, I just started buying other equipment from um, other suppliers. Um, yourself has been one of them. I mainly get um, my cultures and things like that from you, but there has been um, other places where I've got um, uh, more molds. Yeah. Like I only had two of the round ones, and I like to make um, double quantities, so I got four of those. Same with the um, with the feta baskets. I like to uh, had four of those, so I bought some more of those. So, mm. but basically, to go back to the supplier for those, um, but it's mainly just consumables that I'm using now. Yeah, um, I find the that only too. other thing that I've got is I, I now use digital thermometers. I, I know that you use the analog ones. I find them to be a bit imprecise. For me, and um, I like to be able to see, you know, when I'm raising the temperature of something over a 30-minute period, I I like to see it going up by points of a degree right. instead of whole degrees because it sometimes it can race away on you, mm. even if you're using a double boiler. And if you're only going up by three degrees over 30 minutes, you want to make sure that it is actually crawling up very slowly. So I find digital thermometers are good for that. So I normally get them from overseas suppliers because they're nothing – Special, you know, somewhere like China or something like that, pick yeah. up one for 10 bucks. But, yeah, for other things like that, all the other things like the curd cutter that I've got, the spoons, all of that has come in the kit. Yeah. The, uh, the, the waxing bowls, uh, the muslin cloths, all that sort of stuff. Although I, I use chucks now to as my muslin cloth now. I don't worry about using cheesecloths anymore. You can just use them and throw them away. Do you use a pH meter or anything like that? Have you I gone down that track That's yet? another thing that I'm looking at getting. I'm going to get myself a pH meter. So I can start being a bit more precise with, you know, the acidity levels and things like that as things are going along in the cheese making process. But yeah, I have looked at that, and that's going to be another device that goes on the list of, of things to buy. Yeah, you know, I've never used one. No, <laughs> I know. You, in, yeah, I, you mentioned. That, yeah, I, um, it was Darren that actually suggested. He says you should get a PH meter so you get some cheese making. But yeah, I'll have a look into that. They're not that expensive. They're only about thirty bucks. They're a, you know, a reasonably priced one that has a thermometer built into it as well. So, you know, I'm going to get one and try start using it and see what the differences is in in pH levels when I'm making the same yeah. types of cheese. See what, what's going on. I think I may have to get one because I can't master some of the um, pasta falada, the stretchy curd ones, because mm. they have to be at pH of 5.4 before you can stretch the curd. Because I, I can never guess. And there's this little water, hot water bowl test you can do, but I find it quite hit and miss. Um, so that's why I haven't branched out and made anything like provolone or um, uh, or traditional mozzarella or anything like that. There's a, quite a few. And um, uh, cacciacavallo is another one, which is two, look like two big mozzarellas and they string them together and put them over a pole. So I haven't gone down that path yet, so I'll have to invest. When you find the link, mate, send it through. If you can For get a cheap pH one. meter. Yes, please. I'll let you know when I find one. Lovely. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> All right, cool. So what words of encouragement do you have for newbie curd nerds, people that haven't had a go yet, sitting on the fence? Um, what would you What would you give them and what tips? Oh, give it a go. Don't give up when 
things go wrong. Um, you would not believe the amount of milk I have poured down the sink because things have gone wrong. And usually it's because I wasn't reading the recipe properly or wasn't following them properly or thought I knew better. Um, just read what's in front of you, follow it exactly, and if it doesn't work, just keep trying because eventually you'll hit it and you'll go, wow, I didn't, I can't believe I finally done it, and you'll just be spurred on from there. Talk to other people that do it. If possible, even somebody that is already doing it, see if you can go and visit and watch them and help them make some cheese and learn that way. I actually had somebody who's a member of the Curds and Way Down Under group reach out to the team and say, um, is there anyone in the local area that makes cheese? I'd like to learn. I put my hand up. Shani lives about 20 minutes away. She came over a few weeks ago to my place yep. and we met for the first time and we made halloumi and feta in one day. Fantastic. Um, if I had somebody that had done that for me, I would have poured a lot less milk down the sink <laughs> because I was able to impart you know, all the knowledge that I've learned over the years to her so that she won't make those same mistakes. Yeah. So, yeah, don't give up. Keep trying. It's um, Read the recipes. Uh, steer away from um, homogenized milk, <laughs> which I didn't. When I first started, I thought I knew better, mm. and that's why I had all these failures. Get it as fresh fresh as milk as you can and uh, give it a go. Yeah, you know, that that's exactly the same mistakes I was making. I used homogenized milk and thought that calcium chloride was the wonder drug that made everything better. Yep, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. It, it really doesn't. And But sometimes it can be really difficult to find a source of unhomogenized or non-homogenized milk because a lot of um, city folk don't have access to um, that sort of stuff. I know on the, in the Australian market, there's a lot more um, suppliers putting out non-homogenized milk, which is great for cheesemakers. But it was really hard to find even a year ago, even a year ago. I know. I, when I first started, the only milk that I could get was the um, the Paul's unhomogenized milk in, it was an organic or uh, unhomogenized milk in the one litre uh, cardboard container. And it was so expensive. I was spending nearly $20 to buy four litres of milk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which was crazy. Uh, but, you know, I did it because, you know, that's the sort of milk I needed to use. Fortunately now, um, Woolworths is selling uh, a farmer's own brand of unhomogenized milk in both two and three litre bottles. Uh, and because of the economies of scale they're using with that, they're able to sell it for almost as much as you buy homogenized milk for which is making cheese making for me far more affordable mm. and um, easier to do well, I'm not hunting around for it sometimes I go to two or three different supermarkets trying to find unhomogenized milk now I can pretty much get it whenever I want just go to Woolies and it's there so um, to those that are looking for unhomogenized milk just keep trying look around you'll find it it's just once you find it talk to the manager and say to them look I really use a lot of this. I'm, I'm, I know I'm only one person, but if you can do your best to, to keep your store stocked with unhomogenized milk, I'll certainly be a customer of it. Mm. And um, that's what I did with the bullies down there, and they've got loads of it. I don't, I'm not claiming that it's me that's caused that to happen, but mm. let them know, and at least they'll be able to make sure that they talk to their buyers and and try and help you out. Yeah, so and that that's, that's what I found recently as well, because I was buying... Um, uh, Dimeter's Biodynamic Milk, which was it was nearly $6 for two litres. 
which was, you know, and you and you need like 10 litres of milk or 8 litres of milk to make a decent cheese. Mm. And it was costing me like $32 for, for, for a cheese. However, you knew it was biodynamic cheese by the time you finished. And I had a look around for biodynamic cheeses. And for 100 grams, it was nearly $12. I couldn't believe it. So I was making, you know, nearly two kilos worth of cheese. It was nearly worth 100 bucks by the time I finished with it. But, yeah, wow. could, couldn't sell it, but... No, um, but you know, you know that's. I suppose that's. A, you, you get what you pay for when it comes to milk. I suppose you do, and I've seen the end result of that. Even with the milk that I'm buying now, sometimes you get milk that's only got, you know, a week of use by left on it, and other days you get it and it's like it was only milk two days ago. Mm. And um, you can tell the difference when you're working with a, a fresher milk. And in case anyone's wondering, the um, in Australia, I don't know about overseas, but in Australia they stamp the milk with a date, a use-by date of two weeks beyond the date at which it was milked. So if you want to know when the milk was um, milked, that's how you can work it out. Mm. Oh, that's a good tip. I didn't know that one. I just try yeah. and get it so it doesn't have the thick cream on the top that I can still mix it up without having yeah. to whisk it into the milk, which is always a bit of a hassle. But uh, No, I, I spoke to right. the milk board or some, some milk authority in Australia because I was trying to get some more information and I found out from them, yeah, that the... Uh, when the cow is milked, uh, they stamp two weeks from that day forward as the expiry date. Yeah, and that's for that's for pasteurised milk, right? Because I think that's for any. Yeah, well, down here in Victoria, we can't buy raw milk on the market. Oh yeah, sorry, that's yeah, yeah. sorry, that's what I meant. Yeah, pasteurised milk. Yes, that's right. So, can in New South Wales, can you buy raw milk in cartons? You, you cannot. You can only buy it as bath milk. I think. Yeah, but it doesn't have a bittering agent added like it does down I, here. Don't know. I've never tried it. All right. <laughs> um, I'm not uh, willing to get, go down that path. Yeah. Mind you, I have once made milk with um, raw milk from a cow. It turned out wonderful, but I haven't bought any from the supermarket. So you were given that? that milk. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you and, can't buy it. And and the good thing is usually you know the source and the person yes. and their clean. It was, it was from a farmer, yeah. like a, a, a proper farmer down the south coast. And, um, yeah, it was very fresh, got access to, access to it straight away. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was great. So if you can get access to uh, fresh raw milk, do that as well. Don't necessarily rely on what you can buy. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's great words of advice. Now, Brendan, what's some of the best places for people to contact you on social media if they want to ask you any questions? Well, they can look for me on the uh, Curds and Way uh, group on Facebook. Yep. I'm obviously also also on Facebook. Yeah, that's the only places really. I'm just on Facebook and Terra, and that's it. All right, no drama. Thanks, Brendan. Mate, it's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, learning about how you make cheese there at home. And uh, thanks for spending some time with us on the Little Green Cheese podcast. No worries. Thanks for having me on the show, Gavin. No problems at all, mate. Thanks very much. Well, that was a great interview. I had a good time talking to Brendan and uh, getting a different perspective on cheese making and how to begin cheese making at home. <laughs> oh, I think that's home time. For upcoming workshop dates and recipes, you can find those all at littlegreencheese.com, including my ebook, Keep Calm and Make Cheese A Beginner's Guide to Cheese Making at Home. You can also find all of my video tutorials over on YouTube. Just look for cheeseman.tv and you will find 
over 70 video tutorials all about cheese making, including the one that Brendan and I were talking about called When Cheese Fails. Very exciting stuff. Thanks for listening, Curd Nerds, and stay tuned for the next episode of Little Green Cheese Podcast. I'd like to give a shout out to a new Patreon. Uh, thank you very much to Chill Bill for pledging some money towards the podcast and YouTube video channel.